0: Today we're going to continue our sermon series about practical Christian living and uh, specific counsels for us from God's Word and the Spirit of Prophecy about how Christianity looks in real life. Like what are... We had, a, I believe, a, a tremendous set of ser, a series of meetings, but you can only cover so many things in such amount of time, so we're just going to continue on preaching from God's Word practical things that we need to know that He expects from us from His, uh, from his law. But before we get started in any study of God's Word, of course, we want to begin With a word of prayer. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful Sabbath day. Thank you that we can be in your house, and thank you that we can fellowship together. And now, Lord, that we can study from your word. We ask that you send the Holy Spirit to bless our study today. Teach us today, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I like the message entitled today, How to Do What? Postpone Your Funeral. How to postpone your funeral. We, of course, know that unless Jesus comes first, every one of us will die. See, not many amens. It's not a rousing thing to say, though it's a fact that unless Jesus comes first, we're all going to die. But the question is, in the life that we have now, has the Lord given us instructions of how to have a longer, better, better in quantity and better in quality life so that we can serve him more effectively? And the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. We're going to see it directly from God's word today. Um, I have a hunch, however, that a great many Christians view physical well-being, physical health and your physical body, as being subordinate or perhaps even irrelevant to the greater ideal of spiritual well-being, right? I want to make sure that my spiritual nature is well, but my physical nature, ah, it doesn't matter anyway. We're all just going to die. We just said it, right? Well, the problem with this position is that it's based on a faulty premise, that you have these two lives, that you have this physical body that's just here for a while, but then you have this immortal soul that's going, you know, but you recall from our studies already, we've demonstrated that you don't, ha- uh, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. And so your body physically is connected to you spiritually just as much as anything else. So it matters spiritually what you do physically, because we, ha- we are a soul. Now, you've probably heard the phrase, your body is a temple, right? You've heard that. Well, I want to show you today where that originates from. And it actually doesn't even come from the Apostle Paul or any of the Apostles. It comes from Jesus himself. So let's go to the book of John. John chapter 2. Jesus, as far as I know in Scripture, is the first to employ this metaphor of the body being a temple. And notice what he says. John chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 19. To set a little context for this, as I hear that beautiful sound of the pages turning... To set a little context for this, Jesus is being, as he always is, tested and prodded and pushed by the religious leaders of his time. And here we get to eavesdrop on another one of those conversations. John John chapter 2 and verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this, what's that word? Temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now they're standing in front of the physical temple. It took years to build, and that was exactly their response. Notice this in verse 20. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But look at verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his what? His body, right? So when Jesus said this temple, he was talking about himself, including his physical body that would, of course, be slain, but then raised back to life in three days. The Apostle Paul then picks up on that metaphor throughout the New Testament. We can see several examples of that, and I'll go through these rather briefly because we have a little bit of an in-depth study to do today, but hopefully it will be clear and concise and everyone can see the end from the beginning. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, you can turn there too, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, the Apostle Paul is dealing with some people who were uh, challenged with some immorality in their lives. They were being sexually impure, and he wanted to explain to them that it does matter what you do physically with your body as it relates to your spiritual well-being. And he lays out this beautiful principle. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 19. He writes, Do you not know? And again, anytime Paul says, Do you not know? He's assumed that you already know this, that this is Christianity 101. Do you not know? He writes, that your body is the what? Temple of the Holy Spirit, who is where? In you. Now, that doesn't make you God, does it? No, but it makes you a dwelling for God. He wants, to be a, he wants you to be a temple for his glory, right? So it goes on, whom you have from God, and notice this, and you are not what? Your own. Beautiful principle. You are not yours. You are not yours, according to Scripture. Now think about this logically. There are multiple reasons why God has rights to you, and you don't. First of all, did you make you? No. You just showed up and had to have the story told to you, right? But God bent down and made humanity, formed him in his image. Jesus Christ formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being or a living soul, right? So God owns you. He has the patent on you. He has the the trademark stamped on you. He made you with his own bare hands. So first of all, he owns you that way. But second of all, when we ran away from his obedience and disobeyed and sinned, then he sent his only son to save us from sin, so he bought us back. So he made us in the first place, then he bought us again, and he said, now I'm going to dwell in you. Your body isn't yours. First of all, I made it. Second of all, I bought it back. And thirdly, I now dwell in it. So what you do affects your relationship with me. So he says, do you not know that your body is not your own? Romans chapter 12, still the Apostle Paul now writing in the book of Romans chapter 12, as was our scripture reading read, verses 1 and 2, he gives this beautiful principle of our body in relationship to spiritual matters. Romans chapter 12, and we'll begin with verse 1. He opens with the words, I beseech you. What is a synonym? Does anyone know? What's another word for beseech? Beg, plead, exactly, urge. He's saying, please listen to me on this. I'm begging you. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your what? Bodies, a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It makes sense. This is logical. It only makes sense. And he goes on to say, well, he says there, recall, a living sacrifice. Now, Jesus Christ was our sacrifice that died, yes? But now that he's taken our place, we should be just as much a sacrifice, but a living one. Thus, the death that he took from us, we should not take for granted and just go die again. He said, no, I want you to be a living sacrifice. Sacrifice in what condition? Holy and pleasing to God. And he goes on to say in verse 2 and do not be conformed to what? This world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I want you to see these two verses are right next to each other, and I believe so on purpose. He says, I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And don't be conformed to this world. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that if God has a plan for how to treat your body correctly, do you think this world has a plan to abuse your body? Yes. So anything that God has as a truth, Satan has a counterfeit. So God says, I want you to treat your bodies this way. And Satan says, no, 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 don't worry about your body. You live it however you want. You are yours. You do for you. You take care of you. But Christ's word says you are not your own. Therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. It's a very simple premise, but one that would lead to a lot of self-examination, hopefully. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Again, Paul is explaining this, and he, he, he outlines a very simple principle. Very simple Hopefully, what you'll see from today's message, my aim, my objective is to demonstrate that God's plan for our bodies is very simple. It's very clear. And here, Paul lays out a beautiful principle that's easy to remember. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, therefore, he says, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? To the glory of God. You're not your own. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Therefore, don't think about what you want. Think about what God wants for you. Do all to the glory of God. And it's interesting that it includes eating and drinking in this. Now, in the immediate context, you of course, you understand he was talking about food sacrifice to idols and whatnot. And just as he was talking about sexual immorality, but it also goes to food. And we'll see that very clearly. That how we live, our healthfulness, is either giving glory to God... Or it's not. So if there's a way that we can eat and drink to the glory of God, it only makes sense that there's a way to eat and drink that would not honor and glorify God. Apparently it does, according to God's word, matter what you do with your physical body. It does matter. So again, Scripture is clear that we have a responsibility, God, not just some mysterious spiritual way, but physically in our daily lives. So let's go and examine what the Bible says, starting with the book of Genesis, chapter 1, about what God's plan for our bodies is. Believe it or not, this is one of the very, very, very first things addressed in Scripture, is God's plan for our bodies, physically, how to take care of this, or temple maintenance, if you will, how he wants us to maintain the body he's given us, or at least unloaned to us, Right? Now, in Genesis chapter 1, we see the creation week, the work week, if you will, because you'll notice there's no seventh day in the first chapter of Genesis. It's day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And he recounts for us the working week of God. And on the very last day, it talks about the creation of man in God's image. And a lot of attention gets paid to chapters 20, uh, chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28. God said, let us make man in our image, and then he formed man from his image, gave him dominion over the planet, over every fish and every bird and every creature, all the things. We know that. But look at verse 29. And, now that conjunction and means in addition to, right? Also, not just the stuff we just read, but also this as well, right? And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields what? Seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and, whose, uh, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for what? Food. He says, now I've set you up over the whole kingdom. By the way, he brings all the animals to Adam. You'll see that in chapter 2. For him to name them, but not to eat them. He doesn't say, oh, now that's a beautiful hippopotamus. That makes me hungry. No, 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 no. He brings them all to name them, and he's to have dominion over them all, but he said, now, in addition to having dominion over the planet, here's what I want you to know. Look around. Anything that has a seed in it, that's your food. Anything on the face of the earth that has a seed growing in it, that's your food. It's very simple. okay. And every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Now, look at verse 30. Also, that means in addition to still, right? He's continuing his instruction. Also, to every beast of the, on the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every what? Green herb for food. And it was so. Then, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. How many times we reference the creation account where God forms man in his own image, breathes into him the breath of life, and everything was good? And we skip right over not only the creation of the body, but the maintenance of the body that he gave us. It's right there in the beginning of the Bible. Now, there's a couple things I want you to notice from this. Number one, first of all, there was a different diet for man and beast, right? Humans and animals had different diets. Man was to eat everything that had the seed in it. The animals were everything on the surface of the ground that was just grasses and herb of the field, right? So while there was a difference, however, between those two diets, what do they both have in common? They're both plant-based. They're both vegetarian vegetarian, plant-based. Now, you say, "What well, we don't live in the Garden of Eden, pastor. We sinned and fell short of the glory of God. So here we are. That's true. And that didn't happen, sadly, too long after what we read here. You have one good chapter in chapter 2 left, and then we have Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, of course, records the rebellion of Adam and his wife and their consequences given to them by God. And I want you to notice something, starting with verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3 now, where we were in chapter 1, now we're in chapter 3, two pages to the right, and verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife. Now pause right there, gentlemen, that does not mean, aha, I should not listen to my wife. <laughs> what it does mean is you should listen to your wife only as it accords with the will of the Lord, right? Right? Your primary allegiance for both men and women is the Lord, right? But in this context, he's saying, you listen to your wife instead of my instruction, as we keep reading, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So notice he says, now you're going to be eating from out of the ground. Where before, it was every tree, everything that yields a seed, you know, eat that. Apparently, the Garden of Eden was a really great place to eat. Everything was perfectly healthy. Any, you didn't have to work for your food. You didn't have to toil for it. You didn't have to plant. You didn't have to crop. You didn't have to do all these different things. But now, things have changed. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the way, the ground isn't all friendly now. Look at verse 18. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So put a little pin in that, by the way. Just because it comes from the earth doesn't mean it's good for you. I've met people who have, uh, have done things with plants and things that will alter their mind and whatnot. And they say, oh, it's okay. It's natural. It's from the earth. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's necessary. Apparently, you have to be discerning. Some things are for us and some things are against us, right? It was easy before. Now it's harder. No, no. Keep going. And you shall eat The what? Herb of the field. Have we seen that phrase, the herb of the field, before when in conjunction with eating? Yes. For whom? Animals. Notice, apparently, we've taken a step down the food ladder. You're now eating animal food. <laughs> Some people are like, I love animal food. Great. It's still salad, though, right? <laughs> okay. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat Bread. Notice that bread is something you have, to, you have to plant and to cultivate and then harvest and then go through this whole process and work and it's sweat and it's hard work and everything. In the, fa- in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So notice again two important points. Number one, man's diet has shifted as a result of sin. We now eat animal food. However, notice it does not say that we eat animals as food. See the difference? Even after the fall into sin, God's ideal is for a plant-based vegetarian diet. So where did this idea of eating meat come in? Well, we keep going in the book of Genesis. Go to the right now, Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, the earth has just been wiped out because the wickedness of of man has increased so much that the every inclination of thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time, according to Genesis 6. Then chapter 6, 7, and 8 go on with the story of the flood. And now Noah and his family step out of the completely uh, desolate earth, an empty abyss of a place. And the Lord gives instructions. And notice how strikingly similar the instructions in Genesis 9 are to what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. Okay. So God blessed Noah. We're in verse 1, Genesis 9. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, had he commanded that to someone else? Yes, Adam and Eve, right? But the problem is, they had filled the earth, and the earth was filled with wickedness. So the Lord wiped out the earth, and he's starting over, and he comes out to, opens up to a whole new empty world and says, now let's start again. You fill the earth. Goes on now in verse 2. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Now that's a little bit different than the first time. Remember when God gave dominion, then he had all the animals come forward to Adam so he could name them. Now, instead of all the animals coming to man, all the animals are going to run away from man. Why? Because they are, quote, given into your hand. I'm giving them to you now. Now watch this. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things even as the what? the green herbs. Notice it's a continuation. You see the green herbs mentioned three times. First, their animal food, then their people food as a result of sin, and now he said, just like I gave you the green herbs before, we're taking one more step down. I'm allowing you to eat those things that eat the green herbs, right? Animals. Now, oftentimes people would say, aha, there it is, right there in the Bible, Genesis chapter 9 and verse 3. Everything that moves, if it has a pulse, it's dinner. If it has a face, if it has a mom, I'm eating it. Now, think about some logical reasons why the Lord might make this allowance right now in the story of history, in the stream of history. Why would that be the case? Well, first of all, we've already mentioned that they step off the ark, and what condition is the earth in? It's completely sandblasted clean, right? It's had a massive flood. Every mountain was washed away. Everything was... Re- and then he says, alright, go eat all the harvest you find. Or, go plant and wait X many months for a crop to come. He's like, wait a minute. That's a problem. And you notice that the Lord prepared for this eventuality before the flood came. I have yet to see a Drawing, a cartoon, a movie, or anything about the flood get this point right. But first of all, the animals weren't gone and shepherded by Noah into the boat. The Lord brought them to Noah just like he brought them to Adam. Okay? But they, all, they weren't all two by two. I know that's going to bog your mind like there's no Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, but it's right there in the Bible. right? They weren't all brought in two by two. Some were brought in by twos, but others were brought in by sevens, right? Now, why the distinction? Well, the ones that were unclean were brought in by twos, and the ones that were clean were brought in by sevens. They were far more, more than double the clean than the unclean. And you notice that, that, by the way, let me ask you this question. Was Noah Jewish? No. There was no nation of Israel yet. It was Noah's descendant, Abraham, who God would call to faithfulness, and then Abraham would have Isaac and Jacob, and the sons of Jacob become the tribes of... So just like Adam wasn't Jewish, neither was Noah. But the distinction between clean and unclean was given long before there was a Jewish nation. When they went into the flood, before the flood, this distinction was there, and God kept it through the flood so that when they came out... They would be ready for the situation they would find themselves in, right? And the clean animals were to used for two specific things. Number one, for sacrifices. And number two, for food. But also look at the next very next... By the way, this is always that hermeneutic principle. If you're not clear about something in Scripture, just keep reading. Okay, look at Genesis chapter 9 again. Again, verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs... But, he's like, oh good, now I get to slow down. He gives a stipulation. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its what? Blood. So he had already distinguished between clean and unclean. And then he said, and if you do eat the clean, it has to be in this condition, without the blood. Again, this is before there was a Jewish nation. This predates this. Now, Commenting on this particular uh, occurrence when Noah Noah stepped out of the ark and the instruction was given to him, we find the inspired record in Patriarchs and Prophets, the corresponding commentary from the Spirit of Prophecy on the first part of the Bible. Page 107 in Patriarchs and Prophets. Before this time, that is the time of the flood, God had given man no permission to eat animal food. None. He intended that the race should subsist wholly upon the productions of the earth. But now that every green thing had been destroyed, he allowed them to eat the flesh of the clean beasts that had been preserved in the ark. In one succinct paragraph, everything that we just took five minutes to say, wrote down so neat and clean. But as is so often the case, people abuse what God allows and set that as the standard to shoot for you notice, what, what you allow all of a sudden becomes the new norm. For instance, let's go to Matthew chapter 19. Let me give you an example of this. Jesus faced this in his day. Matthew chapter 19, and as you're going there, let me ask you a question. Does the Bible allow for divorce? Does the Bible allow for divorce? Yes, in very narrow parameters, right? But it does allow for it. But lo and behold, when Jesus showed up in his day, the thing that was allowed for had become just what you do. Look at Matthew chapter 19. Jesus faced this, and we're going to look at verse 3. The Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And notice what they added, for just any reason. <laughs> Apparently nowadays it's like, you can get divorced. It sounds like the day and age that we're living in now. No fault, no anything, no problem, just, eh. As long as you both shall love, or as long as you, I don't know. So you burn the toast, who knows? But for just any reason, is that okay? Is that part of your law now? And notice what Jesus says. His methodology for answering these difficult questions is always to go back to the Scripture and go back to the original ideal and work from there. Watch now. Verse 4, And he answered and said to them, Have you not, what, read? He's like, have you not read? It's kind of like Paul's, do you not know? Have you not read? And and I think that's a... Who's he talking to? The teachers of the law, right? The scribes. These are the people who have the books. He's like, that's weird. You have the books. Have you ever looked in them? You should read them sometime. It'll help clear up these issues. Goes on to say, and he said to them, have you not read that he who made them when, at the beginning, made them male and female and said... For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become, what? One flesh. So then, now he makes practical application. I love Jesus' method of Bible study. He goes back to the earliest scripture, works from there, and starts to explain. So then, because it says this, here's the application. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Then they said to him, verse 7, it sounds like you're saying that we shouldn't divorce at all. So notice what they said to him, verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Mm-hmm, they're trying to trap Jesus. So, uh-huh, you brought us back to the original ideal, but Moses, after the fall, said you could do this. What about that, Jesus? And Jesus explains it. He said to them, Moses... Because of the what? hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but in contrast to that, from the beginning, it was not so. So God had given an allowance. You can do this within these narrow parameters, but by the time it comes along, it just becomes what everybody does. And Christ says, let's weed back through that and go back to the original ideal, that the two would become one flesh, not to be separated, period. That's the goal to shoot for. And the same thing happens with our diet. We should go as far back to that original ideal as possible. Councils on diets and foods, page 373. We read this inspired council. After the flood, the people ate largely of animal food. Remember, there was no allowance before, but as soon as the allowance came, it just became, hmm, what we do. God saw that the ways of man were corrupt and that he was disposed to exalt himself proudly against his creator and to follow the inclinations of his own heart. And he permitted that long-lived race to eat animal food to shorten their sinful lives. Soon after the flood, the race began to rapidly decrease in size and in length of years. He said, fine, I'll allow it and you'll get what comes. You'll have Less quantity and less quality of life. Now, we could go back through the Old Testament and the Lord, in fact, let's do that. Let's look at one passage here, Exodus chapter 15. When the Lord did have the nation of Israel, and all the, all the uh, counsels about food that you find in books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy once the nation of Israel were established, were simply reiterations and clarifications of previous counsel that the Lord had given his word. So when he talks about here's the clean and here's the unclean, he had already distinguished clean from unclean, but now he itemizes, make sure it's got this and this and this, and he breaks it down. Okay? And so when we get into that counsel, it's simply a reiteration of what he had already given. But in Exodus chapter 15, when God is calling the nation of Israel out of Egypt Look what he says to them. Look at the promise he gives to them if they will follow his laws. Verse 26. And said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. Apparently, and he goes on, for I am the Lord who does what? Heals you. So apparently our creator is also our healer. He built the body, and he knows how to maintain it best. He gives laws. He gives ordinances. It's the same thing that happens when I buy a lawnmower. If you follow the instructions and give it the maintenance and care, I promise you it will last longer. Now, it won't last forever, but it will last longer and run better if you follow the instructions. Same thing the Lord says. Now, the typical Hebrew diet was very basic, and we can... Get a reflection of that. Archaeologists have studied this out and found that they really didn't eat meat pretty much at all, but very sparsely, and if they did, it was always clean meat, and it was always fish and those types of animals. Um, But largely, it was vegetable-based. And you recall when Daniel went to Babylon, not on vacation, but as a prisoner, you understand, Uh, but he purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's what? Food. And sure enough, that, they, they got there and they weren't going to be t- killed. They were going to be treated like kings, right? In fact, they, that was the whole plan, was to brainwash these Judeans and make them Babylonians so someday they could rule over Babylon. So they were in king training, if you will. And so they brought them all the delicacies of the land put before them. They were going to start eating like kings. But Daniel and his three friends purposed in their heart not to defile themselves with the king's food. And they asked for an alternative diet, like the one that they had gotten for home. And do you recall what the Bible says that they asked for? Well, let's go to Daniel and find out. Daniel chapter 1. Look at chapter 1 and verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And it goes on to explain... How the chief eunuch was very afraid. By the way, this, this is an interesting concept. The chief eunuch had the impression, as apparently all Babylonians did, that this food that the king f- ate was the best food. That you now have access to anything that you want, and you will be healthier and happier if you eat this way. Daniel said, no, 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 no. The simple is better. The most natural is better. And notice the argument. The kind of, not an argument, but notice what verse 10 And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking what? Worse than the young men who are your age. Basically the premise was, if you eat the king's delicacies, all of his rich healthy, uh, in their mind healthy foods, all the bounty, right, that you will in turn be healthier. But he says, my fear is that I have been put in charge of your food and they're going to see you sick and gauntly and pale and weak and whatnot." By the way, the same issue exists today. People are afraid that if I eat according to God's way, that I will be sick and pale and miserable and, and sick. I mean, I'll be, just be done. In fact, I talk to people all the time. I had a conversation this very week about the concept of eating according to Bible's plan and not eating meat, but eating plants the way God intended. And the question was raised, well, what about Protein. How will I get my protein? I will be weak. I'll be emaciated. I'll be pale. I'll be frail. I need to be robust and healthy. And this was the same question that was asked of Daniel. And so Daniel said, well, here's the, here's the deal. Let's test it. Just try it. See what happens. And of course, the Lord blessed. And sure enough, they appeared 10 times better at the end of the toll test. After years of doing this diet, and even after 10 days, they appeared healthier than their other counterparts. Uh, by the way, uh, An interesting news report came out today. Remember how we mentioned how uh, God said, I would not bring any uh, of the diseases upon you? Now, this is from July 31, 2014. Pretty hot off the presses. They did a really interesting study. The Lord brought them out of Egypt, you recall, and said, there will be a distinction if you follow my commands between your health and their health. Okay. Now, believe it or not, they have taken Egyptian mummies, which only, of course, the royalty and whatnot would be mummified, to the kings, whatnot, and have run them through MRI machines to see what was their health like, what was going on with them. And you know what they found? They didn't find some weird, like, extraterrestrial disease. You know what they found? Heart disease. Clogged arteries, the same type of thing that we get from our modern diet, they had. But God said, look, why don't you follow my way of living, and I'll give you longer, better life. It may not make sense to the world, but according to my word, you can trust it. Now, it's fascinating to me. And by the way, on the question of protein, let me just help for just a second here. Uh, Just some little interesting facts. There's more protein in a 7-ounce baked potato than an 8-ounce glass of milk. Um, By the way, I've never in my life, one time, ever seen someone lacking from protein. Apparently, it's the boogeyman we're all afraid of, but I've never seen anyone suffer from it. Now, I've seen people suffer from excess protein. We'll continue on. A diet of beans, lentils, nuts, whole grains like brown rice and lots of vegetables will automatically give you a healthier body while ensuring that you're getting all your protein plus all the other nutrients your body needs to work properly. Pretty much all fruit and vegetables have protein in it. You get that, right? For instance... 100, believe it or not, 100 calories of broccoli has more protein than 100 calories of steak. Put the same 100 calories next to each other, and the protein level will be higher in the broccoli. And you know what's great about broccoli and all the other fruits, grains, nuts, vegetables, legumes, whatever? You can eat all you want. And I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of eating. I love it when I sit down and in front of me is some food. But you have to consider, now, which food will fuel me the best? Which one is the best for me? But if you make the right decisions, oh, it's a better life, right? Anyway, we'll continue on with this as we go on. But by the way, King Solomon warned about eating like a king. You know, And we live in a very interesting, turn to the book of Proverbs, but I'll tell you something on your way. Solomon warned us, we're going to go to Proverbs 23, and I want you to see that this is actually in your Bible too. Proverbs 23. And on your way, I want you to know something. Now, it's not so far away, even in, our, even in our current position, if you get low on money, if your finances are tight, it starts changing the way you spend, and especially you spend on food, right? You start eating poor food, right? Rice, beans, those grains, the things you can buy in bulk and you have to like cook, <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you go into the, you know, the, the refrigerator, the cabinet, it's like, oh, I just see ingredients, but I don't see food. You know, that's the type of food you're supposed to eat, right? And all those basics, basic staples of life, right? Now, kings, however, in the Old Testament time, and pretty much any time now, could eat whatever they want any time of day. You know, it's interesting, if you were to continue studying in the book of Daniel, when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, King Darius, who was on the throne at that time, refused to have any music brought to him. I'd love to be in a position where I have to turn down the nightly music. right? But I don't have that. But kings could have anything they wanted at any time. You want some food? You got it. You want some music? You want somebody dead? No problem. They could live with no restraint whatsoever. And if you notice, food-wise, we can pretty much do the same thing now. Believe it or not, when it's February in Michigan... I can go down the street and buy a lime. That is not normal. <laughs> but we can have anything we want any time of the day or night. It's available ubiquitously, advertised relentlessly. We live like kings for the most part. At least we can. It's accessible to us. Now, look at, with that in mind, go to Proverbs 23. Let me show you something interesting here. In the book of Proverbs, this, of course, being the, intre- the, the most intelligent man, the wisest man to ever live, we find this counsel. Chapter 23, verse 1. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you. Right? You might be living on that poor staple diet food, but then they bring this bountiful harvest, you, and your eyes get all big, and you're like, oh, man, it's a very theological term, but you'll go, um, oh, no, 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 no. But he says, consider, think about what's before you, and look at verse two. I never make appeals this strong. You're welcome. And put a knife to your throat if you're a man given to appetite. You're going to see that big mortgage board before you. you're you going to start just. Oh. And he says, before you do that, if you'd be better off just put a knife to your throat and say, this is going to kill me. Not the knife, but this, right? Put a knife to your throat if you're a man given to appetite. goes on to say, do not desire his delicacies, for they are, look at that beautiful term, deceptive food. Yeah. It's deceptive food. It looks like food, but it's not. Do you know we live in a society, we can go buy a lot of stuff that claims to be food. You turn over the ingredients in the back, you realize it's made in a test tube. You know, it's like, what is this thing? It's not even, it's a food-like substance. (laughs) It's some sort of quasi-food experiment, right? It's deceptive food. God actually makes food, and it comes out of the ground. He says, eat that. But the king's delicacies are all prepared in such a way, and all of a sudden, it's not really food anymore. It's deceptive food. And he says, you'd better put a knife to your throat. Consider what you're going to eat. Fascinating. Let's look at another one. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 just over one book, Ecclesiastes chapter 10 to the right. Now, this counsel is given to an entire nation for how to choose their leaders. But look at one of the prerequisites, again, for leaders who would have access to anything they want, right? Ecclesiastes chapter 10, go to verse 17. It says, blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the what? Proper time. Apparently there's a time to eat. I saw what, 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 one of the fast food restaurants is now, you know, advertised as fourth meal. <laughs> like you can eat all day, all night. Open 24 hours a day. Come feed. Calm down now. And notice why they eat. Why they feast. For what? Strength and not for drunkenness. They're not just eating because they love to eat and don't care about the results. They want strength. They want wisdom. They want health. So they eat at the right time, they eat the right foods. Because of laziness, the building decays. And through idleness of hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes merry. Don't worry, money answers everything. I can't think of a more accurate prophetic description of the day and age in which we live. I can do whatever I want, eat whenever I want, do whatever I blah, 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 blah. and don't worry, they'll fix me. There's a pill, there's a thing. We've all been there. But it's describing a society where, don't worry, I'm rich and increased in goods, and I can do whatever I want with no restraint. He says, be careful when you come into a situation like that. Consider carefully. Go back to Proverbs again. Proverbs 23. twenty three, starting with verse nineteen. Hear my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. Do not do not do not mix with wine bibers or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Notice that there's an equivalence there between drunkenness and gluttony. And he says they both end the same thing, right? You get lazy, you get forgetful, you get tired, you can't really function that well. You know, I'm just as afraid of people driving after a big meal as they are after having a small drink, right? They're both just real kind of, I've been there, you know? It's like, I don't care if you drink or not, but if you have a big meal, you can barely keep your eyes open no matter how interesting the conversation is. You're kind of drifting and whatnot. Apparently, that's not the goal of food is to be an intoxicant that gets you weight, right? It's apparently supposed to keep you strong and healthy and sharp. He says, watch out. Right? The Bible repeatedly parallels drunkenness to gluttony, yet somehow there are many Christians who are teetotalers about alcohol, which we should be, right? but treat gluttony like it's not a big deal. It was like a one-whispered amen. That's okay. Now, obviously, I'm not saying, you're right, we should raise our drunkenness to match our gluttony. Is that what I'm saying? No. <laughs> we should decrease both so that they don't exist. Amen? I'm saying that we should look at health holistically, not just as a list of certain things to avoid. Like, as long as I'm not drinking alcohol, I'm fine. Or as long as I'm not eating unclean meats, or as long as I'm not doing this, then I'm fine. We set these right. These are my no-nos, and everything else is... Today's message is about health, and not merely vegetarianism. Care for the body that is not yours requires more than merely avoiding drugs and meat, you know? And even, I'll, I'll throw this out there, and this may not be popular, but even veganism isn't the goal. Not one amen, that's okay. I'll explain what I mean. I think veganism's a great thing, okay? I think vegetarianism is fantastic. I'm a vegetarian, and I'm aiming for veganism, even though I'm not there yet. However, you can be a vegan and eat Oreo cookies and drink Coca-Cola and talk about you live living the health message, right? Now you understand what I'm saying. That it's not just merely making list, now I'm going to avoid these things and then I'm going to go... No, no, no. There are simple biblical principles for healthy living that we need to abide by. I, I, this, the thought came to me one time, I was back in Idaho and I originally started putting some of these thoughts down on paper. And I realized that I was a vegetarian who ate deep fried cheese sticks and dipped it in ranch sauce, you know, with a Dr. Pepper on the side. But if somebody had like a lean turkey sandwich, I was like, oh, wow, you don't have the health message. (laughs) And I realized, you know, maybe we're both missing the mark somehow, me just as much as them, yes? And again, I've said this before from this pulpit, and I'll say it again, I'm constantly amazed at how many Seventh-day Adventists, myself included, are often vegetarians who don't really eat vegetables. We eat everything else, right? But the concept of just eat the most basic, simple, healthful, whole foods that come from the ground is like, ugh. The seven Seventh Adventists have had God's health message for 150 years plus now, by the way. But have you ever noticed that when some new health trend comes up in the world, Adventists jump on it like its newfound treasure? Like, oh, U.S. News and World Report said it. Now I'm going to... National Geographic said that if we live... Oh, now I'm going to... Which brings me to this interesting statement. It's from Councils and Diets and Foods, page 267. And it was written in 1902. Okay? Animals are becoming more and more diseased. But thank goodness they've eradicated that problem, right? And it will not be long until animal food will be discarded by many besides seven davenists. It's like, you watch, the world's going to start turning. And have you noticed the hippest, coolest thing to be, by the way, is a vegan these days. Plant-based, healthful, whole foods, diets. That's... That's what's in, that's what the rage is, and we've had it for 100 years, but we didn't like it until it was cool. We could go down, by the way, it's a really fun thing. You can Google vegan athletes. Some of the most top premier athletes in the world. Uh, I think of a guy, uh, by, there's, apparently, there's a baseball team in, in Michigan. Did you guys know that? They play in Detroit. Anyway, I don't know. Well, let's not get into it. But their first baseman, a vegetarian. Prince Fielder, ever heard? Anyway, vegetarian guy. People are like, now I'm converting. (laughs) Carl Lewis, you know, the great Olympian athlete, vegetarian. This guy kind of beats the other guys, I think. His name is Dave Scott. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Probably not. But um, he holds the record for most Ironman championships. And I know we've heard of an Ironman, but let me tell you what's involved in the Ironman. Uh, it's a 2.4-mile swim in the ocean, which at that point I'd be done. But <clears throat> 100 and, when you get out of the water, you climb on a bicycle and ride for 116 miles. And then you start your marathon <laughs> of a 26-mile run. Okay? 2.4 miles, 116-mile bike ride, 26-mile run, and that's one Ironman. And the man who has the most championships in that is vegetarian. U.S. News and Rural Report, February 2009. It's list of top ten healthful habits that can keep you living to 100. Number eight, which should have been number one, (laughs) live like a Seventh-day Adventist. goes on to say, followers typically stick to a vegetarian diet based on fruits, vegetables, beans, and nuts and get plenty of exercise. They're also focused on family and community. Of course, again, remember the 2005 National Geographic special about the blue zones and the... uh, uh, cultures of longevity, those people who live to 100 or longer, they report, by far the most surprising fact that I took away from this story is that Seventh-day Adventists outlive their American counterparts by about 10 years. What are they doing? So literally, unless a bus hits you or Jesus comes first, right, barring some ridiculous other thing, we'll live longer if we follow God's health message. It's just simple science fact now. Goes on to say, if you're a devout seven dad, as you're a vegetarian, non smoker, non drinker, who takes a Sabbath every Saturday, where for one whole day you have just to unplug. They're looking at this like, how simple, how beautiful, and where have you been hiding it? And they go on to say, because some of the other cultures of longevity are starting to lose their longevity edge because McDonald's has found them, right? Interestingly, the Seventh-day Adventists are the only culture of longevity we visited who are not losing their longevity edge. That if we stick to the plan, God will demonstrate his wisdom through us. So let's get some simple conclusions here. Number one, put the veggies back in vegetarianism. Eat real food, real simply. Very, very simple. Ministry of Healing 296 grains fruits nuts and vegetables constitute the diet chosen for us by our creator these foods prepared in as simple and natural a manner as possible are the most healthful and nourishing they impart a strength a power of endurance and a vigor of intellect that are not afforded by a more complex and stimulating diet by the deceptive food number two meat eating is allowed by scripture but it's not preferred if you do use clean meat and or clean meat products only occasionally and even then sparingly. Number three, start a regular drinking habit of water. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.